History, lecture number 59, Rabbi Blywise. Uh, today we are focusing on the holy um, Tanayim from the, in the post Horban phase as they um, preserve Torah and Klal Yisrael and what ends they have to go to towards preserving Klal Yisrael. So when we last left our heroes, they were sitting in a semicircle, <laughs> quite literally, in Karen Biyavna. In the um, in the base havad in Karim Biyavna, surrounding the Nasi Ramagamliel the second, um, the uh, great great grandson of Hillel, as we said, but with a um, literally uh, all star list of gedolim of early Tanaim um, that we mentioned, Rebbe Yezer, Rebbe Yoshua, a younger Rebbe Akiva who's not yet emerged as the uh, as the undisputed Gadol Hador that that that's coming. Um, Nachum Ishgamzu, Rabbi Tarfon, and, and many others um, are present as the uh, Torah, the oral Torah, is for the first phase in history starting to be recorded. And when we talk about the, the beginning of, of starting to record things, it was done, we saw a while ago, there was one system of recording things. This was in the period of the Zugos that they recorded um, for mnemonics for their own personal use because the Torah was getting so vast that you had to somehow uh, keep it, keep track of, of why was the Torah getting vast? The Torah is always the same. Because more machlokas and more different applications. Torah always remains the same, but in any generation, you have to know how to reapply it and mm-hmm. how, to, how with new technologies, for example, or new cultural realities, you have to know um, how, to, how, how it's supposed to come out. Fences grow, exactly. The, every fence that you add adds another dimension, another complexity, right? <coughs> so with this in mind, they're taking very, very reluctant and cautious steps towards committing this vast oral tradition to some kind of a written form. And that's what, I mean, eventually we're going to know of it as the Mishnah, and they, they were even referring to it in these days as the Mishnah. That's what their um, grand project is. Part of this project of the Mishnah, the Gadol, is their paskening. Remember, the machlokis starts to break out. After we had the first machlokis for all those generations over Smicha, remember that? <coughs> So then we had a we had the three between Hillel and Shammai, and then the many the explosion really between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, and the, in Yavne they have to paskin. Now why have to paskin? Because people are confused and they need clarity. We need a as we said last time a halacha and a mish a halacha brura and a mishabura. We need to give the people some kind of direction. What what are they supposed to do in their their basic life? Often we found this, and I gave examples of the three early machlokos between Hillel and Shammai. Um, we often paskin like neither. We have we paskin like a third, often a compromise view. Um, sometimes they come to the proper psak through the help of the baskol. These are times without prophecy that sometimes Hashem sends in a heavenly echo, as it were, down to give us some kind of direction. The uh, an example. Maybe a very famous example of such a machlokis, Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel argued not only practical halacha, but also more conceptually hashkafic halacha, including, was it a good thing? What do you say? Uh, whether or not people were created. So according to Beis Shammai, 
This is the Gemara Neruvin. Noach lo la'adam shalonivra. It would have been better, no offense, had you and me not all been created. That's what Beis Shammai says. Man, was it Noach lo la'adam? Was it good for man that he be created? Beis Shammai comes down to the side resoundingly, no. Why? Velo ye'amesh. Because we're created and therefore we're in trouble. Because the minute we're created, we sin, we sin, we're punished. If we were never created, we would never have a... How can he say that? Surely that's heresy. Uh, well, listen, listen, listen. Hold on, hold on. It's not. It's not recognized. It's a theoretical thing. They're not saying. They're just saying. Is it good for man that he was created? The answer is no, because oh, okay. because yeah. if everything were equal, um, a variation of the same theme in theme in the Gemara in Kedushin, Rabbi Yochanan expresses the idea um, better that a man would never have known his parents. He himself, like Esther, um, his father died at conception, his mother died at childbirth. So he literally never knew his parents. And he said, I therefore get an A plus in Kibbut Ava'im. I never failed in Kibbut Ava'im. And the rest of you yeah, all, the rest of you are miserable failures. He also never from Fair enough, fair enough. He said, he said, but the opportunity to blow it in Kibbut Ava'im is so much greater, even though it was a mist. You're right. It's your your perspective so is valid. Uh, excellent point. Excellent point. Because I'll make your points as well. Yeah. Meaning all of these are valid points. His point is not exclusive of your point. Meaning they're both good insights. Of course, it's better, and we seek mitzvahs in life. I think it's better not to have parents. But he's saying on a certain level, you never mess up. You never, you never uh, destroy your own record in Kibbut Ava'im when you never have parents to honor. So to Beishamai, a more, more radical, uh, sweeping view is better that we would never been created so that we'll never be, listen, listen to the whole, listen to the whole presentation. Maybe he was trying to make like a bad situation with something good. Oh, that's a nice shot. Right, in other words, of course we want mitzvahs, we want the opportunity. Um, you remember what the Anshiknes Sigidola said when, um, when, they, when they were reacting to the, one of the most important turning points in all of history at the beginning of the Second Temple period. I certainly emphasized it here that um, we know why you created the Eight Sahara for idolatry so that we should overcome it and get reward. We don't want it. And we don't want its reward. Because what we've seen it done is it's created, destroyed our first temple. It's made us bereft. We're not capable. And the Kodesh Baruch affirms that idea. And that's why he nullifies, as it were, the Yitzhahara for idolatry, evidently. So that's, that's based Shammai's position about the, our whole existence. Base Hillel comes down with the other, other view. Noach Shinivra. No, it was good that we were created, and the reason is um, so that we can get to Olam Haba. And we'll have merits in Olam Haba. In Karen Yavna, they paskin and they debated these deep questions. And in this particular case, they paskin like Beis Shammai. That was what we. That was the part that you walked in on in the middle. Karen Yavna is the semicircle in Yavna, which is after the Churban of the Second Temple, the destruction of the Second Temple. The new Torah center is a tiny, modest uh, Torah uh, outpost in Yavna, um, and that's where the great Tanaim are now sitting. And that's and, and that's they're really our focus today. We'll, we'll hear we'll hear a, a like, lot about that. Isn't there like a famous mosaic? It's possible. I'm not. Nothing's come to, coming to mind. But maybe you're thinking of something. So they paskin like Beis Shammai. Better that man would not have been created. And then they conclude 
given though that, I don't know if you know this part, we were created, no really, uh, given that we were created, at sure, least, but... at least, um, we should, um, what man should do, given the fact that a Kodesh Baruch did create, he should introspect, he should look into his actions and try to improve himself as much as he, as he could. So what they're saying, existentially, is somehow, you know, everything being equal, it would have been better off that we'd never been created, but the fact that Kodesh Baruch Hu, in his superior wisdom, did create us, what we can hope to accomplish is to try to be as good as we can and to perfect our ways in an imperfect world. This is supposed to be the Karen, the Yavne, it's a mosaic in Yavne, but it's not of Yavne. It's a mosaic, as one finds in the ancient world, um, one finds it up in Beit Alpha, what's called Chetziva, one finds it in, in Sipori, in many of the places um, typical of the Talmudic period, the, the, um, the zodiac. And that's all Akasha. How did they have a zodiac back in Shul, which is based on pagan kinds of themes? So that's not for now. Uh, but it's not of the Karim Yavne, it was a mosaic they found in Yavne. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. different point. Um, this now, we now begin with the, what we're calling the phase of the mission or the phase of the Tanaim. We're now beginning in Jewish history. I mean, even though we think of these times as the darkest, most depressing of times, but in many ways, without the temple, without the sectarian strife that tore Klal Yisrael apart, now we're left rebuilding ourselves. And listen to this. The next 400 years, we're in the first century of the Common Era. Over the course of the next 400 years, years learning Torah because we don't have much else going for us we don't have a nation we don't have a, a sovereign um, country anymore we're heavily persecuted we're going to be following the you know exactly what happened to us but the only thing we have left to us is our holy Torah and that will become a, nat a national fixation for about 400 years it's for example described in Marabah Basra Tamil Chachamim were so focused on their learning that they literally wore out their feet traveling from one town to the next to study. That's what they did. Many of them in these days will leave their families behind and they'll leave their families with the blessing of their families, their wives, their children. They recognize the highest goal in this world, in this existence, is that Abba should go learn Torah. And will, as it were, will, they'll be self-sacrificing towards that end. Um, they would go for years. We know most famously, of course, during this period, Rabbi Akiva went for 12 years and then another 12 years, as we'll, we'll discover soon enough. Um, but he's not alone. For example, Rabbi Hanina Bar Chama uh, and Rabbi Yehuda Nasi each left their homes for 12 years. Mark Zubos tells us Rava will urge his son to leave his wife to learn for six years. Is there something to do with 12 years? There certainly is. Twelve tribes, all these things are not... Whenever you see numbers in the Gemara, you know that there's, there's, there's a lot of depth to that. Rabbi Ruhamai would come home once a year, and as being away, essentially, for, for the majority of the year, he would come and, and pay a house call, as it were, once a year. Um, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos that's very famous, that you probably know, is really describing much of the life of the sages, of the people learning... Pas b'melach tochal, eat simple bread in salt, umayim bim surat tzishte, drink bitter water, va'al ha'aretz tishan, and sleep on the ground. Of course, the ground is the ground next to the bench of the base medrash. V'chaye tsar techia, a life of struggle you'll live, uv'toyra amel, and toil in Torah. That will be your fixation. 
Um, it was true of the poor man, definitely, but even the wealthy man. We have a lot of famous wealthy men of this period, Rabbi Lazar ben, ben um, Kharsum, Rabbi Tarfon, who we've met, we're going to see more. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah was famously wealthy. They lived, um, even though they had the means to live much more in much more fancy lifestyles, they lived sparsely, and their goal was to study, study Torah. And they used their money to help Klal Yisrael, to do chesed. Um, this is very much, I mean, this is one of the most lofty periods in all of our history. Um, we know at the market, on the road, when they were in gathering places, and the Gemara is full of these stories, painting a real mosaic, talk about mosaics, a whole big um, relief, a, uh, a whole big uh, mosaic of, of a life that people are consumed with Torah, trying to understand the Kaddish Baruch Hu's, uh, spiritual, spiritual teachings and how we're supposed to lead a holy life in the physical world and in all these places Torah is constantly being discussed there was no such thing you, you went to the wedding nobody just sat around schmoozing there was no small talk everybody was holding in the sugyas that we're holding in now in Makos this was their mainstay this was their, their what, what their life revolved around there was nothing else the physical world had, had little to promise so it was all about Torah um, now, we always have said that the Pasuk in Tehillim, there's a beautiful song, a few, few different melodies for this that we sing. Ma ahavsi torasecha kol hayom isichasi. You familiar? Ma ahavsi torasecha kol hayom isichasi, or other variations. Or ma ahavsi torasecha. How much I love your Torah, kol hayom isichasi. All day long it's my conversation, but in these generations, this was the national pastime, and they literally lived it. This was the nation. That's how you have to understand. It's a different, different phase of life. Sometimes people open up the pages of the Talmud, and they see it feels it's not foreign or not really describing our reality. And you know, they say, oh, therefore, I don't relate to it. But <laughs> the point is, is that their reality was a superior one, and if we don't relate to it, that's our own, our own fault and, our own, uh, and something we should be fixing ourselves. Um, the nation in Eretz Yisrael, but of course all over the world, we know we've talked about the Jewish diaspora during this period, um, the center is clearly Yavne, and everybody is rallying around the Chachamim in Yavne. We have, exa for example, the Gemara Nida tells us, Nida tells us at the time that the men of Alexandria send um, 29 questions to Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, the great Rabbi Yeshua who we've been talking about, we'll hear a lot of stories about him. Um, Yavna now, with the absence of Jerusalem, is in charge of one of the obvious things that the Klal Yisrael absolutely needs and depends on. Based in, but more than based in, like for regular. Based in Mikdash, but what do we need functionally to be Klal Yisrael? Rosh Chodesh. We need to know. We don't have a calendar that we're using, so they need they, they rely for the setting of the new months, the sighting of the new moon. Um, similarly, Ibor Hashanah. The leap years, because you don't know whether there's going to be an extra Adar this year or next year. And in and, and Yavna, they're establishing this for the entire nation all around the world. Um, when there are droughts, they daven for rain, much like they did in Yerushalayim. Um, they, when uh, people are held captive, which is sadly characteristic of this period, that, that they took a lot of Shvuyim, so they're responsible for collecting Pidyon Shvuyim to redeem the uh, captives as best they could. Um, Often in Rome, they'll decree terrible decrees against Jewish people, so the great people of Yavna will be the representatives, our men in the breach, as it were, our representatives who are going and, uh, and helping us. So Yavna has become, and it's very modest, 
not assuming it's not the place you'd ever think was the capital of Klal Yisrael, uh, but this is the nature. Now, this is the nature of the, of the place. The clear leader at this point is Rabbi Gamliel. He is personally wealthy. He has, uh, he has servants. Of course, his most famous oldest servant is still Tavi, uh, who he's inherited from his grandfather. He's blind at this point. He must be blind at this point. Um, we know that Rabbi Gamliel, of his many great character traits, was very careful. He, he was the Nasi. Nasi meant he was the figurehead. He was the one in charge. But he was aware all the time that it wasn't just for him and for his kavod. It was because Klal Yisrael, in this post-Korban generation, needed a leader, needed this figurehead. Without this, the whole project falls apart. You know, you have to imagine, there is no Talmud, there's no central organizing book or body that represents Klal Yisrael. Yavne is it, and the position of Nasi is very important. I, I'm, I'm emphasizing this point because there are a couple stories ahead of us that are shocking stories that are about to unfold in history. And if you don't understand how precarious, how, how fragile this whole world is as the Jews have to redefine their whole infrastructure, um, we can't appreciate what's about to happen. He's very careful with the honor of the Nasi. He doesn't care about his own personal cover, which is a quality one finds. I mean, you really can't be a gadol hador. You can't be a great person in Torah if you're arrogant. That goes without saying. We've talked about this before. We've seen our greatest role models, our greatest leaders were always people who were self-effacing. They're not in it for their own for their own, own glory. And Rabbi Leal is an example of this. The story uh, that's told in the um, in the Gemara. And why don't I have my reference in front of me? In my notes, I don't see the Gemara, but it's a famous Gemara. I think it's in Ksubos. In any case, um, he's Mochal and Azam Kavod. Once he makes a wedding for his son, and he invites the other Gedolim, Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Tzadok, Rabbi Tzadok are all in attendance. And from the Gamliel comes over, and he is their waiter. Can I get you anything else, sir? Would you like something else? Now, he's the Nasi. So these other Gedolim are there being attended by Rabbi Gamliel, and they're not happy about it. And Rabbi Yezer, when he's offered a coast, a glass of wine, he says, no, I'm not taking it. I refuse the coast because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to let you serve me. I should serve you. And Rabbi Yeshua disagrees. He says, no, take the cup because you know the original Nasi, who's the original Nasi Elohim? Avramavinu. And Avramavinu, of course, had no problem with Hachnasus Orchim. He served all of his guests. So if he can do it, so it's really not debasing at all for Rabbi Leal to do it. Um, Rabbi Tzadok himself cites uh, even a better example. He says, who provides food? Who's the attendant, the waiter to all of his creations? HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. So if he could sit in attendance of all, all of us, so we, we certainly can as well. Uh, so that's, that's, that's his argument. There's a contemporary story told. Apparently it's apocryphal. This is not a true story or a gift or denies it, but it's a great story anyway. Um, of a couple who approached Rav Mordechai Gifter of Tel Zeshiva, um, and they, uh, maybe it happened to somebody, but it, anyway, it's a great story. Uh, they approached him, and they, maybe he, in his own modesty, he didn't want to take the credit for it, um, and they had marital problems. What was the problem? She wanted him to take out the garbage, and he didn't mind the idea of taking out the garbage, but he felt, because he was a, the, the husband, not Rav Gifter, the husband, going, the approaching Rav Gifter, um, felt that he was uh, 
Talmud Chacham of a certain status, and it was simply not befitting his own kavod that he should be taking out the garbage. So they finally realized, let's go ask, let's go ask the Shaila. And um, we talked about this story once, I remember on the bus a couple of years ago, and it's not about Rav Gifter, he denied it emphatically that it was about himself, but it, it may be about somebody. The story of the couple goes <coughs> and they approach him, she wants him to take out the garbage, but doesn't feel it's covered fair for him to take out the garbage. So Rav Gifter, whoever it was, says to him, it's forbidden, you should not take out the garbage, it's not covered fair. Later on that night, there's a knock on the door in this couple's home, and um, she goes to the door, and, and it's her gifter. And she's her gifter. And oh, you guys are dating over here? We're about the Jewish history. Where are we? I know. No, no, no. <laughs> I, just, I just told the Yavin, I mean, the real serving the other Gnola. It's not going to say it's the same. It's the same. Same. The, uh, so, so he comes so he goes to the door, and everybody in the house stands up immediately. The gifter's there. And they said, um, you know, gifter, what can we do? Is there something you need? And the gifter says, no, no, I just wanted to see if I could take out the garbage. He said, the husband is way too hoshu. He's too important. He shouldn't take out the garbage. But Gifter said, I'm here. I'd like to take out the garbage for, for you. Bias, yeah. But not only for Shalom Bias, but in other words, we don't have a problem taking out the garbage. Avram Avinu took out the garbage. Kaddish Baruch Hu, as Rav Tzadok just argued, he, he provides for all of his brios. Nothing, in other words, is beneath our dignity. If it's, if, if it's something involving chesed, the true gdolim have no problem, as it were, um, defa- effacing themselves. For them, it's not a come Yes, my well, advice, but isn't there a din of salamta that sometimes you part it from a shabbos avayda? Oh, oh. Right, right, right. I'll be leaving shortly. No, just making trouble. No, it is. It is true that you have to use your, you have to use your discretion. Clearly, sometimes, <coughs> sometimes it is lo l'fich um, but that's really the nakuda that we're making here because Rabbi Gamliel, we're about to tell some really incredible stories about Rabbi Gamliel, who is unerring in his support of Kavod of the Nisius, meaning there is a hierarchy and you can't be Mochel on Kavod Torah. That's for Torah. But if you're talking about my personal Kavod, he didn't care about his own personal Kavod. Oh, it's coming up too. Rabbi Elizabeth Nazaria, we're about oh, to read. It's all, all coming up right around the corner. All of these stories are coming together, and you'll see how they're all interconnected. The um, around the year eighty, around the year eighty in the Common Era, uh, Rabbi Gamliel and the Sanhedrin are moved from Yavne, which is pretty traumatic because we just established that Yavne is really the undisputed new center of Bal Yisrael, but because of the political situation and, and, and um, all kinds of persecution, so they have to move. And they go up to Usha. A couple years ago, I took the yeshiva on a tour. Do you remember, I'll tell you where Usha is in Eretz Yisrael if you can't picture it. Um, remember we went on this wonderful hike down in the forest in the footsteps of Eliyahu Hanavi? Uh, Hanavi? Remember that one, you know, beautiful one, the first day of an overnight? Right, Nachal Yagur. So not far from there. Last year when we, when we did it, we actually went over to Usha, to the area of Usha, which you, is not much to see nowadays, but it's, it's interesting to go. So the Sanhedrin will be there a couple of times. It'll make the move. And this is the first time that it moves to Usha. Is there a problem that it moved away from Yavna? You'd think, but apparently, you know, it was these were tumultuous times. So apparently, the guarantee was 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 came with a uh, uh, um, a deadline or you know expiration date, as it were. So you know, they, apparently, it wasn't so set, so so secure as they thought. Um, now, Usha is less spacious than in Yavna, and many of the rabbanim during this period disperse. So there is. Uh, 
plenary. There is a group there, but it's not as big as it was in Yavne. Um, Rabbi Gamliel himself has his base medrash moved down to Lod, which is near the airport today. Um, a quick survey, the Sanhedrin winds up, the Sanhedrin is the center. All Shilas go there, establishing the new moon is in, is in the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin itself moves a total of 10 times. We saw this briefly, but I'm, I'm just summarizing again. Remember the Sanhedrin was initially in Yerushalayim, in the Lishka Sagozis, in the temple compound. It moved to Chanus, which Bezras Hashem, I hope, maybe to take you to, if that's the right place later this year, sometimes someplace just outside of the temple <laughs> mount, then into the city of Jerusalem. Well, you have all these places you want to take us, but we don't have like that much time to do everything you said. I know, well, I know. So I hope I'm not breaking too many promises. I still have my ambitions. Like, Bezras Hashem. I still want to go tomorrow, how about Me too. We have to do that. Okay, so keep pushing. Um, the, um, then from there it went down to Yavne up to Usha. It'll go back to Yavne if you want to keep track of all the, of all the various uh, travelings of this. Uh, let me just finish this. It goes back to um, Yavne in about 116 of the Common Era and then back up to Usha. Uh, in 140 it moves to Shvaram from Usha under Rav Shvaram, which is right next to Usha under Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. About 163, these are rough approximate dates, to Beit Sha'arim under Rebbe, and then Sipori, and finally, sometime around the end of the, of the second century, it moves to Tiveria, which is its final resting point. And Chazal tell us that this, Sanhedrin will, will, will see this, is gonna be obliterated, and one day it'll return, and when it returns, our tradition is that it's gonna come back in Tiveria. What are you? Were we there, like, at the spot, the archaeological thing? That's uh, the closest, theory, uh, you know, most logical theory that that place, good memory, um, but I took you to and you saw me getting all excited about it, right? Because it's hard to share the excitement, but when you, when you yeah, understand you, the background and the history, you go, wow, you're standing in the place of the Sanhedrin. At least I wanted to give that over to you. Very good. You have good, good memory, Barak. Um, yeah. The Sanhedrin still have like the power of Chayim, like to say something Chayim Misa. No, that was even before the Chorban. We talked about they did away with Chayim Misa with with a, with a couple of exceptions. They killed off. Um, don't tell Mel Gibson, but they killed off Yeshu and others occasionally, uh, and his five disciples. But um, but they they um, since the Chorban, there's been no capital punishment. Um, I should say. There's been no formal official capital punishment. Do you know that there are times that people can kill? Yeah. When is an example that today, today potentially, by the way, don't try this at home, kids, right? We don't, we don't form any vigilante squads and go around um, randomly killing. But when would be halachically permissible to kill? Rodef. Rodef is a classic example of somebody is somebody's coming to kill Shalom. You can, you can kill in self-defense. Um, a moser, a moser who's deemed to be a rodef, you want to make sure that you're dealing with a certifiable rodef or moser. A moser is somebody who's a snitch, who tells the authorities and thereby endangers an individual or a whole community, so a moser could potentially be killed. But formally, we don't have, we don't have uh, misos based in. Back in Rome, Titus has died, and Titus's brother is named Domitian, and he is now the new Caesar. He's an evil guy. The year is about 81 when he, when he succeeds Titus. He may in fact have been the murderer of his brother. Um, and of his various accomplishments, what do we know about Domitian? 
he murders most of the local Roman Chachamim. There, you know there's a Jewish community in Rome? And um, he murders them. He also oversees the second slaughter in history of the local Christian population. Um, it's amazing that Christianity exists because what they endured under the Romans especially, we're going to hear, we're going to hear, and the entire population of Christians were slaughtered. And again, a few hundred years later, you know, like a hundred years later, oh right, and that was when the Christians were all rounded up and slaughtered. And you don't know, you have, you have no idea, we'll have to analyze this. Why were they all slaughtered? Because the Romans couldn't stand them. Oh yeah, that was before the. This is before. This is before the, the Christian Christians rise up and swallow the Romans and become become the official uh, state religion in Byzantium at least. But uh, back in the day, they were obnoxious. Remember, Christians, unlike Jews, are aggressive proselytizers, and the Romans don't like to be told what to do. Thanks very much. They really didn't like that. They found it very obnoxious. Um, so he. Right, right. Well, I would argue, why, what was the secret of their tenacity? Remember, Christianity is the closest spin-off religion to Judaism. Uh, sure, and, 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 and remains till today. They're teaching, the Rambam discusses what is the redeeming <coughs> quality. Why does, why does Kaddish Baruch Hu, as it were, continue to you know, keep the Christians going? So one of, and, and not just, he asks this by Islam, too. It's a very famous part of the Rambam. He says, what is their function? You know, they did elevate the world's consciousness. I'm apologizing, my, my voice is weak. I hope it doesn't put you to sleep or anything like that. I'm trying to take it easy so I don't, I don't lose it for the week. But um, uh, my, your indulgence is requested. The, um, in any case, the Christians um, gave the world a certain consciousness. Listen, do you know that today, people, are, people in the South Pacific know what the Ten Commandments are? They talk about Akadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, it's a, it's a paganized version of Akadosh Baruch Hu. It's called Shituf. But at least they have an awareness of what Hashem is. Rambam says that effectively the Christian world and the Muslim world have prepared the masses of the planet for the ultimate Mashiach. Even, Those, when, even when the Jews were like worshiping the Bedouin, they still did the The Jews? Yeah. Interesting. Jews. Yeah, so what do you say? The Christians, and I'm, I'm agreeing with you. So the Christians have some um, something in their core is legitimate, and the Kaddish Baruch Hu perpetuates it. Demission, this evil, crooked ruler, is not content with massacring a few local Jews. He realizes part of the secret of our continued survival is we've got these great institutions. There's this Nasi, there's this uh, Beistin, uh, the descendants of Beis David, and he sends his minister, a fellow by the name of Turnus Rufus, um, pay attention to this name. We're going to hear about this name at several points over the next couple generations. And either there was one big bad guy who lived a long life, or there were several people with the same name. Because Turnus Rufus is going to continually come back to haunt us. Uh, they're all bad. Um, this Turnus Rufus, the earliest iteration of Turnus Rufus, um, is sent specifically to wipe out all surviving descendants of Hillel. And of course, front and center, Rabbi Gamliel II. He's sent to assassinate him. <coughs> Turnus Rufus comes to Yerushalayim, and one of the things he does, one of the five things that uh, that takes place um, on uh, on the on the 17th of, uh, of Tammuz is he plows the city, he plows the area of the Heichal where the where the holy temple stood, the Kodesh, 
it was on the 9th of Av, excuse me, not on the 17th of Tom, I was wrong, it was the 9th of Av, the idea was to um, remove any hope the Jews might have of rebuilding the temple. Um, he took whatever tools that they had as a way of not just destroying, but trying to dig up any remnant, any foundation of what the temple was. Um, some say that this episode took place after Bar Kokhba's defeat a couple generations from now. So dating this is a little bit tricky. Um, now he's assigned to give to, to kill Rabban Gamliel. And um, he designates a certain official to find Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel, of course, smart guy, goes into hiding. Um, and the official finally sees him. He comes to Rabban Gamliel. And he sees this great man hiding for his life. And he decides, I can't kill him. He said, um, I'll save you, but what can you do for me? And they cut a deal. It's a very good deal, by the way, if you ever find yourself in a situation. Rabbi Gamliel trades, um, this, he trades his life, and, he, and he's able to promise the, the uh, executioner with Olam Haba. It's a pretty good deal. You know, I, don't know, I would take it. That's, that's me. Um, so the official jumps off the roof. And the law is like this. When there's a decree, this is the Roman law. It's a strange law. I can't explain, I can't defend them. I can only, I can only describe it. The law is, there's a decree. Rabbi Gamliel must die. It's handed over to a person to execute. If that person dies, the decree is nullified. That's the Roman law. We're gonna see this repeat itself. So when the man, the man goes up and jumps off a roof to his death, when he dies, the supposed executioner dies, the decree is nullified. And Rabbi Gamaliel survives, and, uh, and the Nasius thereby survives. A Baskol comes down and proclaims that that executioner is worthy for getting Olam Haba. Um, you know you mentioned the different places that St. Edwin was. Mm -hmm. Was it ever in Benebra? Never. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva was in Bnei Brak. Because it says in the Haggadah that they were all learning Bnei Brak. In, that's right. They were they were in Bnei Brak learning Torah, but they weren't. That was not <laughs> that was not the official Sanhedrin. Uh, okay. Right. Um, the next story. I got a bunch of stories today. You guys hot in here? Better. Um, now we find in the next story Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yoshua, and Rabbi Yezer. Pay attention to the names here because these are our heroes, and they're going to not. Radical things are about to happen to them. So Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yoshua, and Rabbi Eliezer travel to Rome on behalf of Klal Yisrael. And when they get to Rome, they find, among other things, they find a group of children playing in the sand. And these are obviously Jewish children and obviously taking captivity back to Rome after the Chorban. And the kids are playing a game and the Rabbanim get closer and they see, you know what they're playing? It's the cutest thing in the world. Uh, the kids are playing... I want to be, I want to show, I'm going to be mafrish trumos and maishos. They're pretending that the sand is freshly plucked produce from Eretz Yisrael, and they're tithing it to give the different tithes to the Kohanim and the Levim and so on. That's their game. And they say, wow, what a beautiful people. That this is, these are the games that the kids play. I have to say, I, I, I got nachas this last Shabbos. I watched my Hillel, who's 10, playing with my Rivka, who's 4, and my Chana, who's 2. They played Shabbos. Hila was the Abba, Rivka was the Ima, Chana was the baby, was typecasting all the way. And, um, and they sang Shalom Aleichem, and Eishas Chayil, and then, and then Hillel gave everybody brachas. It was the cutest thing. The only thing that was cuter is what Alicia and Hillel used to play. Alicia and Hillel, what their favorite game, they used to play Kriya Satira. 
where they put on a on a piano they put on Shabbos they they laid out a, a talus and then they took out a chumash and um, Elisha knew how to lane so he would call Hilla Hilla got all the Elias because there was only two of them playing so Hilla got all the Elias and he yamod and he would get it, like say Baruch Hu Hashem Amavarach and then Elisha would read it that was their game right so this is, these are the games that uh, the Jewish kids play. Um, Rabbi Yeshua gets word there's a, there's a child who's been held prisoner uh, in a certain prison and he goes to the prison and he stands outside the cell and he starts to, to recite a pasuk and when before he finishes the child inside the prison completes the pasuk can you do that okay so he continues this game and the child I don't know uh, look, up, look up the Gemara. The child continuously finishes all the psukim that Rabbi Yeshua starts. Um, and Rabbi Yeshua is so taken that he asks the officials, how can I bail this boy out? And they ask for in the, in the, uh, a, a huge sum of money, and he raises it. And he finally frees the child. The child's name is Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha. Say it again. His name will be Rabbi No, his, the child's name was Rabbi Yishmael. Oh, he will be Rabbi, right? He's not Rabbi yet. Fair enough. Good Akiva. He's Yishmael. We know of him as Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. Um, his grandfather, who shared the same name, because they often go like this, it's Yishmael, whose son is Elisha, whose son is Yishmael, whose son is Elisha in that family. So his grandfather was, was one of the first of the Asara Haruge Malchus, who's, who's so beautiful. That, the, that she preserved, the, the daughter of the Caesar had his face preserved in a far Simone. That's the grandfather. That was the grandfather. And you remember, it may have been his father or it may have been an uncle and an aunt um, who were so beautiful that when um, they cried when their masters tried to have them cohabit, to mate and have more beautiful children, they both died instead. So this is the grandson, this is the, the descendant of these people, of these great people who, um, who survives and uh, is going, we're going to hear about Rabbi Yishmael, among other reasons. Where do you know his name? Do you know what, what is some of his claims to fame? Um, he is what we say at the end of Korbanos. His, his teachings are the 13 principles of, or, or hermeneutical principles that we, that we derive all of the psukim from. That's Rabbi Yishmael. He's, um, he is the famous Balpluksa, the common person who argues with Rabbi Akiva uh, and very, we'll see, we'll see a lot of him. And Rabbi Yeshua arranges for his safe passage to Eretz Yisrael. So Rabbi Yishmael is now on the scene. Um, now, we, we find Rabbi Yeshua, and again Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer are about to embark on three major conflicts, disputes between them. Um, they are on the surface brutal, bitter conflicts, and every one of them is L'shem Shemaim, the what's at stake, and they each have a different perspective on what's at stake, is they're trying to preserve Torah in this incredibly tenuous, precarious time in history when everything is at stake and how, what is the nature of Torah, what is the authority of Torah that's going to preserve, that's how the following, and you're probably familiar with them, famous stories. I think, I thought one of them came up in Rabbi Akiva Tatz's uh, discussion last week, but here they are. Uh, this one is told in a couple places in Rosh Hashanah, Gemara, and Brachos, um, the story starts like this. Rabbi Gamliel is the Nasi. He's the head of Sanhedrin. He's back in, it's either Yavna or Usha, one of those places. And there are witnesses who testify to sing the new moon. That's how it was done. 
and they testify of Edu Sachodesh, the new month has come, and he accepts it. And Rabbi Yeshua, among many other Rabbanim, say, no, Rabbi Gamliel, they are liars. These are not reliable witnesses, and the new month has not yet started. It's the next day. Uh, they want to be ma'aber the month. They want the month to start the next day. And Rabbi Shua is really speaking on behalf of everybody. And after an in intense debate, Rabbi Gamliel makes the following demand. You know, who learns the Mishnayos of Rosh Hashanah? There's a minhag to learn. There are four chapters, so people learn them for the four official meals of Rosh Hashanah. People learn the chapter. So this is very famous from that. This, this story comes up, and it's elaborated in the Gemara Brachos. Rabbi Gamliel demands, Rabbi Yeshua, you will appear before me carrying your makel and your maos, carrying your staff and your money on the day that according to your calculation, it's Yom Kippur. Do you get what he's doing? He's, he's requiring that, um, that Rabbi Yeshua break his own understanding of Yom Kippur, which is a person who breaks Yom Kippur is Chayev, Kares. Kares. Heavy, heavy, heavy duty stuff. And he says, I want you to show publicly that you're molded, you admit that I'm right. And um, he does. Rabbi Yeshua complies. Now Rabbi Akiva is present and he says, Rabbi Gamaliel's right. The Basin has authority even over superior logic. Even though Rabbi Yeshua, in theory, is right, but the Bastian has authority, and he learns it from a pasuk. The pasuk says, "Asher tikruosam," that they call means that the calling of the Bastian is disqualifying. If the Bastian, which Rabbi Gamliel represents, doesn't call it, so it's it's not the new month. So Rabbi Yeshua comes forward, and he carries his stick and his money, and Rabbi Gamliel reacts. He kisses him on the head, and he calls him. It's a very famous Mishnah, Rebbe. Rebbe Talmidi, you're my Rebbe and you're my student. You're my Rebbe Bechokma in wisdom, and you're my student, Shikibalta Es because you accepted my authority, accepted my words. And remember, we said at the beginning of class, it's all about authority. And Rabbi Gamaliel is not doing this for himself, he's doing this to buttress, to support the, uh, the primacy of the Nasi. So I'm summarizing. There are a bunch of stories like this. And Repeatedly, Rabbi Yeshua is humiliated and usually publicly humiliated. And you have to understand, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah is one of the most beloved figures of all of Klal Yisrael. He is, we're going to hear about him later on, he's also one of the most famously ugly people ever to walk the earth, uh, but and absolutely beloved. Oh, that's interesting. Probably, but not to his face. It's not polite. Not good meetups. Yeah, but he's you know, you all know what he's. You know what Jake is talking about. There's a bracha that we say when we see exceptionally ugly people, but just not to their face. It's not nice, right? Yeah, but surely he was on a level to accept it. What's that? Surely he may have been on a level to accept it. He may have been on a level to accept it, but please don't call me Shirley. The um. Okay. It's true. It's true. Um. <clears throat> It's one of the episodes, by the way, it's a lot of famous stories here. There's a young student present who asks Shaila, he wants to know, is davening Mayriv, uh, Rishus or Ahova, is it, is, it, is it obligatory or is it an optional thing? Oh, yeah. um, do you know what it is? What do we pass in? What, by Mayriv? It's mandatory. 
it's a rishus. Even though today it's the halacha, we all have in Ma'ariv, but it's not the same. It's, the, it's one of the reasons why we don't have a Chazaras Shas in Ma'ariv. Because it's not, it's not the same degree of, of, of obligation as davening Shachris and Mincha every day. So who's that young student that anybody know? Comes out at the end of the Gemara and Brachos. His name, maybe you might not have heard of him. His name is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And is, is early, early on in his, uh, in his, in his uh, learning. He, he was the one who asked this question. So, um, yeah. So, finally, at one point, Rabbi Yeshua is standing while everybody else is sitting in the, in the Karen Biyavna, and he's standing totally humiliated, totally uh, debased, and the rest of the rabbis present can't take it anymore, and so they all stand up to show that they're with him, and they're against Rabbi Gamliel, the Nasi. So what you have now are the works of a major insurrection. Because you have Rabbi Gamliel, who's clearly the definitive leader, and everybody else is siding now with the beloved Rabbi Yeshua against him. And um, ultimately, they, they move, and their movement is successful to remove Rabbi Gamliel. It's a coup. And they remove him from the Nisius. He served for 23 years. Um, and now the question is who should be our new Nasi? Who's going to replace him? And it's an interesting debate because. Usually, the Nasius is the descendant of from from, the from Hillel, Nasi. from Hillel, and now they're going to bring in a foreigner. So they consider: should we should we make Rabbi Yoshua the new Nasi? That means there would have been a natural coup then. No, worse. No, it, it, he was. It would have been embarrassing Rabbi Gamliel, but they call him a Baal Maisa. He's too um, biased. He's in the story. You yeah. can't have somebody who's no, in it's, the... It's, it's like an actual uh, revolution. Like, it would right. seem like he started Right. And, and since we do revolutions differently, our revolutions are always L'Shem Shemaim, that he won't be a good candidate for the job. They consider Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, who's young... He's a convert. Right. He lacks what's called Schus Avos. He doesn't have the merits of ancestors. He descends, of course, from... Right. I gave you the name earlier this morning. Sisra. Oh, right. Sisra. Um, and they wind up selecting uh, a very, very young Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Um, what are his criteria? He was extremely wise. He was also very wealthy. Why do we care about that in these days? He had power. He had power and influence. Yeah, exactly. He, has, he can influence the Romans with his wealth, and he will eventually. So those are, those are, those are seen as definitive qualities for the job, characteristics for the job. Um, Rabbi Gamliel had exactly those qualities. He was also a Chacham and he was also wealthy. He's also the 10th generation descendant from Ezra. It's pretty good. Um, but he goes home and his wife said, the only one thing is really famous. I, I you know all that. know this. Anybody who's been to a Pesach oh. Seder before knows this. The only one thing she says, she says that you are lacking for the job is um, you are 18 years old and you have no gray in your beard. <laughs> She says that just no Nasi could be without gray in his beard. So of course the well the logical thing happens. Um, he wakes up the next morning and eighteen rows of gray appear miraculously in his beard overnight, and that's where he says, Hare Ani Kaven Shivim Shana. I am like seventy years old, not literally because he's only eighteen years old, um, and now he's 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 appointed the new Nasi of the base team. Wait, Rabbi, you can't, you can't be... <coughs> it's 
It's plausible. It's a little bit stretched, but it's possible. In these generations, with all kinds of miracles, everything's <laughs> yummy and so on. Why not? I guess. I don't know. It's just Ezra lived 120 years. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, it's all it's all possible. Um, we celebrated this. Our Rosh Hashiva this morning became a great grandfather. But you think in the scheme of Jewish history, that's small fries. Since after all, Rav Eliashiv was a great, great, great grandfather. And if you do the math, you realize that's really spectacular. That's a lot of coordination between the generations to make sure that virtually every 20 years, the next generation was having a a new child. Um, Rav Lazar installed Nuli as the the Nasi heading the Sanhedrin. His first step in job is arguably one of the most, um, one of the greatest turning points in history, is to remove the guard that stood at the base medrash door, selecting who could come and learn Torah and who was not allowed. A little bit of a backstory. See, Rabbi Gamliel posted the guard. He didn't want anybody who was coming for the wrong reasons to learn Torah, <laughs> and so he said anybody. The people who are allowed to come in are people whose toho kivaro, whose inside is like their outside. They're not hypocrites. They're pure and religious in the best sense. And once you establish that they're qualified, they can come live Tyra. But effectively, what that meant is that many, many, many Jews were kept away, and they weren't they weren't given the opportunity of learning Tyra. It was definitely not a derech approach. I don't know if you realize what an immense Baal Chesed Rabbi Brickman is, but he, I, I think, un, unlike almost most institutions of this kind in, uh, in Eretz Israel, he takes virtually anybody who wants to learn Torah. That's, it's an open door policy, and that's including financially. People can't afford it, we figure out a way of making that happen. In any case, Rabbi Gamaliel's approach was different. He felt, he did it L'Shem Shemayim. He did, no, no, we, we want, we're preserving Torah. We can't have people whose motivation is less than L'Shem Shemayim. And so he posted these guards. And when Benazariah gets up, and in his first act, he removes the guards. What happens, and you have to kind of picture the scene, the place is suddenly flooded with students. People far and wide hear that, they, that the doors of Yavne are now wide open, and everybody comes charging through, almost like they're brimming, overflowing with Tyre to give over. Because they know so much, they want to be a part of the process, they want to contribute to this process that we're going to call the Mishnah, and when Rabbi Gamliel sees this, I mean, it's, it's an immense display. He becomes weak. And he thinks, what's happening? Chas v'shalom, but maybe I've prevented all this great Torah from being learned. So a baskel comes from heaven and, and comforts him. And the <laughs> Gemara very clearly indicates that he was a big tzaddik and he meant it l'shem shemaim. That's why the baskel comes to comfort him. But he was wrong. Wait, and he shouldn't have posted guards there. Is it it's in Brachos. This Gemara is in Brachos. And on Chav Zayin, Chav Ches. The very famous, important Gemara. Could be place, sure. Could be. Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Yeah. That day, we're going to hear about a lot throughout Shas, and particularly in one place in Shas, that <laughs> day that everybody comes running in, it's about the year 98 of the Common Era. That day is a day that a certain Meseches in Shas is taught. It's called Meseches. Anybody know this? This is really good history to know. Meseches Eduyos. Testimonies. Why? Because it's that day that all these students are flooding forward. They're coming to the base team to testify the Torah that they learned from a variety of different sources. 
You have to imagine what's going on. Before you had Yushalayim, you had centralized authority, you had the Sanhedrin. So people learned there. With the Chorban, you had persecution and dispersal. You had people all over the place. But that didn't mean the Torah disappeared. And so you have students who were alive who knew different pieces, different Mishnayos and Brisos and different fragments of Torah. They came and they testified. And again, only if it was legitimate Torah was, it, it was, was the testimony accepted. Let me just finish the basic explanation, then you'll ask. Um, this is the time that Eduyos is taught. Um, all the Torah that had been previously concealed is now brought out. Bo Bayom. And every Mishnah in Eduyos has this law shown. Bo Bayom. Any place in Shas, when he uses the expression Bo Bayom on that same day, on that particular day, um, it refers to this day. Anybody learned the Sechus Eduyos before? It's quoted, it, among other things, it's unique as a Masechus because there's no one singular topic. It's about everything, which makes sense because it was that day that they came and talked about all kinds, a hodgepodge of all kinds of different topics. Yeah? Isn't that the Masechus which talks about when uh, the time Shammai eat hello, right? Yes, yes, right. Yeah, I started that. Yeah. Um, they also are watching during this entire time, and, and it's all on one day. They have this like, very dramatic day. And meanwhile, throughout this entire display of all these witnesses coming forward and giving over their Torah, there was one person watching everything. He was sitting, remaining part of the proceedings, never too arrogant to be bothered by anything. He stood there and took part of everything, and it was Rabbi Gamaliel himself. And they looked at Rabbi Gamaliel and they said, he's the real thing. He wasn't, he's not arrogant. He, he did it in his humility. He accepted his demotion. He's no longer Nasi, but he's a Chacham. And so he's going to be part of everything that goes on. And they saw, wow, it was all the same Shemaim. And they recognized that all he was doing when he was humiliating Rabbi Yeshua was trying to elevate the position of Nasi. Clearly, he was not acting on his own personal self-interest. Um, he went around personally to reconcile himself with all the gedolim that he might have offended, and he makes house calls. He visits them in their homes. Um, he comes, of course, especially to Rabbi Yeshua's home, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanani, his major protagonist, uh, and and he comes, he, the, his major um, opponent in these in the in in, the, in these conflicts, and um, he notices when he visits Rabbi Yeshua's walls, he says, you know, so interesting, the walls of your house are black. And Rabbi Yeshua said, yeah, that's because I'm a coalsmith. I work in coal. And of course, they're, you know, of course, everything's black. It's all, it's all over me. Right? I got this. It's black. And Rabbi Gamaliel said, oh, really? I never knew you worked in coal. And Rabbi Gamaliel, remember, was a very wealthy person. He didn't have to worry about making a daily parnasa. And Rabbi Yeshua accuses him. He said, you know, you're the leader of the Jewish people, and uh, you don't even know what all of us do to make a daily parnasa, to make our living. And Rabbi Gamaliel accepts the rebuke. Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what the source of his wealth is. It may be in some Gemara, and I don't know it. I don't know the answer. Yeah, I know he's famously wealthy, though. Um, in the end, they decide that Rabbi Gabriel is such, such a great person that they want to give him his job back, but now you have a problem. Once you elevate somebody at a level of holiness, you can't take him off. And you have two Nassim. You have Rabbi Gamliel and you have Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah who's done nothing wrong that he deserves to be demoted. So they make a compromise. Effectively, Rabbi Gamliel is the Nasi, but they make it rotating where one Shabbos out of every um, 
out of every uh, month, Rabbi Elazar will still will give the drasha, meaning he'll be the avbeisin, he'll be the figurehead, um, and and both of them, as it were, will will retain authority. The last major story that I want to tell you today is a story called the Tanur Shel Achnai, which chronologically would have followed the last story, the last events with Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Yoshua. Um, are you familiar with it? I mean, who, who, who knows the story of Tanur Shel Achnai? It's one of these world, one of the most famous stories in all of Shas. So I thought this is one of Tat. Somebody's mentioned this, or Tat's mentioned this. Maybe not. But you'll tell me. Technically, what is a Tanur Shel Achnai? Tanur means an oven. You know their ovens did not look like our nice electric ovens. It was yeah, lots of different shapes. It looked like a, a, a sand castle. It was, it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a heap of clay. You put the bread on the walls. On the walls. You smeared the walls with fat and you put the bread up on the wall. Right, that was the tunnel. This particular tunnel was complicated. It, it was a, an oven that was broken. It was earthenware. And it was broken into clods and reassembled. And the reason why it's called Shalachnai, Achnai is the Aramaic word for snake. It looked like a snake with all these different um, units that came together. Let's say you made a clay snake and you made it with like individual balls and then you put them all together. And then the cumulative effect looked like a snake. So that's what the Tanur Shalachnai looked like. And the question, and it sounds like a very dry technical sugya, the question at hand was if it's Tome. You know what Tuma and Tara are? Tuma, if it acquires some kind of impurity, um, could it be redeemed and made Tahor? If you take it and dismantle it and put it back together again, would its status now be, uh, would it be pure? According to Rabbi Eliezer, yes. He was Mitaher. He came to that based on pure Svara. Once the thing was taken apart and put back together again, it lost the name of being the previous Tanur, and now it's a new thing. As a new thing, it's, it's pure all over again. Chachamim didn't agree. They said it's mitame like classic klicheres. Oh, I thought so. Yeah, I like klicheres, like, like any other earthenware object. That. That's the machlokis. Okay, fine. That's the, that's the basic machlokis. You could learn more if you want to. It comes up all over Shas. It's, it's in Baba Metziah, it's in Kalim, it's in other places. Fine. For our purposes, what you need to know is there's a machlokis between Eliezer, who says it's Tahor, and Chachamim, who say it's Tome. Go ahead, Aaron. What do you do something similar to, like, uh, what's that? Like, what do you do something that's what they did before with Subos? What do you do two, two, uh, two heads? Instead of having rotations? Oh, you're saying with Rebbe Gamliel and Rebbe Elizabeth Nazaria? Yeah. Don't know. Interesting question. I don't know why they didn't rotate it. That was the solution. Well, he did take the title of Bastian, but apparently that wasn't enough since he'd served as Nasi. So maybe maybe that's the answer. Okay. Um, ordinarily in halacha, how do we pass him? By the majority rules, right? A yachid against against the rabbim, um, and anybody a, a yachid who then continues to have his minority view and say, no, no, I don't agree <laughs> with you. He's got the halachic status of a zokein mamre, of a rebellious, <coughs> a rebellious elder. It's not good. And Rebbe Yezer, now I'm, getting, I'm reminding you, Rebbe Yezer ben Herkinus Hagadol was the same Gadol, remember, crying his way into Godless, who went to Yushalayim and learned by his Rebbe, Rebbe Yochanan ben Zakkai. And uh, an immense Talmud Chacham and a beloved person. 
And he really, L'shem Shemaim, felt that he was right and he kept up his argument. And he had the status of a Zokin Mamre, of a rebellious elder. And he went around individually, because when you, I don't know if you have this feeling, when you learn a certain shot and you're persuaded, I don't know if anybody here has that feeling. Let's say you just know you're right about listing numbers on the lines next <laughs> to the text in the Gemara, let's say. You won't let up until other people are persuaded. Does anybody know anybody like that? Yes. Okay. Okay. Right. Oh, sorry. We have we have we have somebody in our midst. No, no, Arye, that's you. Right. Right. In other words, in other words, somebody somebody who's so set on like this is my way, my way, the highway, and and he meant the shame shemaim like Arye, all the shame shemaim. Right. And he went around personally campaigning, and he converted Yosef and then Tony, and he converted people towards the cause. Right. And that's Rabbi Ezra. He's now going around personally trying to persuade everybody else. This is the view. You have to see it this way. It's true. This is Emes. Okay? And he's not successful. Unlike Arya, he was not successful in convincing anybody. Um, they say, you can't, your logic is fine, Rabbi Eliezer. Our principle is on a received, on what's called Kabbalah, a received tradition. You're not going to talk us into it. Um, he says, he finally gets up. Do you know, okay, he gets up and he says in the base Medrash, if... Um, or actually, he's outside the base measures, evidently, because there's a carob tree there. He says, if I'm right, let this carob tree prove it. And the carob tree proceeds to move a hundred amos on its own. That usually doesn't happen by me when I'm trying to argue my arguments. And Arya hasn't yet used that trick to persuade the rest of our shir, but I, you know, don't put it past you. Okay? Um, and they still are not persuaded. So he says, okay, if I'm right... Let this brook, this little river of water, prove it. The water starts to flow upstream. And they're not impressed. They say, we still don't believe that you're right, Rebbe Yezer. You got all of Hashem's miracles on your side and we still don't buy it. As he says, if I'm right, let the walls of the base medrash prove it. At which point the walls of the base medrash start um, tilt halfway. And the Gemara explains, they don't actually fall down. Um, they tilt halfway, partly in deference to Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua was the major antagonist. He was the argue, He was the one who argued with Rabbi Eliezer. But they don't. But they, they tilt somewhat out of deference to Rabbi Eliezer. So you know, like I don't know whose side to take if I'm the walls of the base medrash. So they compromised and came somewhere between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. And um, still, with all these miracles all around them, the rabbis, the majority, are deferring to Rabbi Yeshua. They say. He's right. We don't agree with you, Rebbe Eliezer. A basco comes down from heaven and declares, Halacha <laughs> is like Rebbe Eliezer. What does it take to persuade you guys? And Rebbe Yeshua turns to the basco and says, completely unfazed, Roba Shemaim here, quoting the Pasuk, it's not in heaven. Torah is given to people. We're the Chachamim. We have the authority. We outvote you, Baskol. And um, Baskol is the heavenly voice, as it were, Hashem's voice, coming down and telling them that the halacha is like Rebbe Yezer. And Rabbi Yeshua is saying, Loba Shemaim, he, I don't buy it. We're right. You're wrong, Baskol. Um, and he points out, Achrei Rabbi Mahatos, he says, the majority is like me. This is the halacha. Um, HaKadosh Baruch Hu later on proclaims, Nitzchuni b'ni, you beat me, my son, acknowledging Rabbi Yeshua's, the superior argument that Rabbi Yeshua makes. Um, 
It's a hard thing to understand. How could Rebbe Eliezer persist? This is a kasha. How does Rebbe Eliezer persist? We know this is true, and he's like a Zakin Mamre. So his point was deeper. He was saying, because of Domitian's persecutions, because Chazal had moved out of the center, um, the people who remained in Yavne were, were not the majority of the rabbis. And he said, this is not, this, he argued, this is not really a halachic rove. This is not a majority, since so many of the rabbis are not here at the time that this argument is taking place. That's why he was so persistent. That's one, that's, Victor Miller brings this down as, as, as one of the explanations. But clearly, everybody's motivated L'Shem Shemaim. Um, that day, they bring all the objects that Rabbi Eliezer has said are tahor, are pure, and they bring them and they say, and they bring them to Rabbi Gamliel and they burn them publicly. In other words, to say that everything that you've touched, everything that you said is tahor, we now hold to be treif. We hold to be tome, and they burn them. And they vote there and then, Rabbi Eliezer is not present for this, they vote to put him in Niduli, which is a form, a terrible form of excommunication. They're going to excommunicate one of the Gedolei Hador, Rabbi Eliezer. And um, he was not only one of the Gedolei Hador, I'm a very close friend with all of them. Rabbi Gamliel's sister is a famous woman named Ima Shalom. She's Rabbi Eliezer's wife. So they're even interconnected through marriage, and they decide they're going to put him in Niduli excommunication. It was a temporary, what we call a horashah, a measure to avoid machlokis, and they felt they had to because if Rebbe Ezer got away with this, it would have decentralized Torah. So Torah was at stake. They assign Rebbe Eliezer's beloved student, Rebbe Akiva, with the task of going to inform his Rebbe of his new status. And Rebbe Akiva dresses in black and approaches his Rebbe. And I wouldn't have wanted that job. And when he comes to Rebbe Eliezer, he informs Rebbe Eliezer of the terrible news. And, well, <laughs> I guess the logical thing under the circumstances, everywhere Rebbe Eliezer's eyes look, burns. A gadol has these powers. He was not pleased. Um, he doesn't back down. He refuses to relent. Put me in Nidui. I'm right. The Tanr Shal Achnai, this... This, tam- this tanur is tahor, it's pure, and I'm going to hold my view. And so they continue the excommunication, and he goes and lives by himself for the rest of his life. And the Nidui persists um, until he dies. Interestingly, they continue to recite his Torah. I don't know if you know this, Rabbi Eliezer is one of the all-stars of the whole Tanahitic period. He's one of the major names that we have in the Mishnah and the Brysos. Uh, and we learn his Torah, but he was a lonely man for the last chunk of his life. He was in Nidui. And we're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to see what winds up happening at the end with that. Uh, a couple more details, and then we'll uh, call it a day. Um, this is a time of immense godless and Torah. It's a time of preserving Torah for future generations. I have to mention there's a great figure. His name is Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov who was actually older than most of these gedolim. He was a peer of Rabbi, Yosh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He had a long life. Um, he's called, this, this is a different Rabbi Eliezer, right? It's confusing sometimes a lot of the same names. This is Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov. He is called Kav Venaki. Um, Kav Venaki means um, straight and clean. And his major contribution, what he's very famous for, is he studied the details, all the dimensions of the Beis HaMikdash. He remembers it when it stood, 
and his testimony over every single detail in the Beis Hamikdash, precise kav venaki, was used as the foundation of a different Maseches in, in, in Shas called Maseches Midos. Midos is our source for the Beis Hamikdash, and it's predominantly based on the on, on what Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov saw. In, in Yuma Hassan. Eight Midos is about this. That's the subject of Midos. Um, he was also not just about the base of Mikdash, he was incredibly erudite and clear in his teachings. And um, so much so that whenever he's mentioned, the halacha goes like him. Um, Rabbeinu Hananel on the pages of the Gemara says that this happens exactly 102 times in all of Shas, 102 in Gematria. Kav. Kav, which is the expression kav vinaki, straight and clean. So he's 102 halachas. Every time he, he has an opinion, halacha follows him. Um, I want to give you just one more gadol, and you know the name. Those of you learning Makos this year, he's also alive during this time. His name is Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. Okay? This is Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. The guy by the mikvah. By the mikvah. Yeah. The rav by the mikvah to you and me. The, uh, in other words, not Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, not Rabbi Yochanan ben Nafka, this is a different Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, who's from this time. He lives in a place called Beit Sha'arim, which will become Rebbe's home in the future. He also saw the destruction of the temple. Um, he was a student of Rabbi Gamliel's <laughs> grandfather, the original Rabbi Gamliel Azakim, together with Rabbi Akiva. Um, and he has some famous teachings. In addition to teaching our Mishnah about the mikveh at the beginning of Makos, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zuri teaches that one who gets angry, it's like he worshipped the Vodazara. Famous Gemara in Shabbos, uh, don't get angry. One of those midos that we have no compromising, no, no, no and that's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zuri. Um, he was so smart that he could look at the sea and calculate the number of drops, appropriate enough that he would have an opinion on mikvahos. Um, a person who, who sees Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in a dream, we learn this in Avos Rabbi Nassan, one who can see Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in a dream can expect to be uh, to fear sin, which is a great quality. There are actually four gedolim who are uh, cited in this in this brisa. One who sees, so if you see Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in a dream, you're going to be yirei chait. If you see Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, you can expect great wealth. Remember Rabbi Elazar, who's the temporary nasi and has the four, 18 rows of a gray in his beard, he was a wealthy man, um, right? One who sees Rabbi Yishmael, who was that child in the, in the prison who knew all the psukim in a dream, uh, can expect great wisdom. And one who sees Rabbi Akiva in a dream, the price that concludes, he should worry about persecution. Oh, ouch. Uh, we'll get to Rabbi Akiva, Bezrash Hashem, um, he and others tomorrow.